Ezekiel 43. Last week we covered one of the more powerful and profound prophecies of the book of Ezekiel and maybe in the Bible as it relates to our time period that we're living in. We talked about the Gog, Magog invasion, Ezekiel 38, 39, pretty intense. Uh, I have another prophecy for you this this morning uh, from Ezekiel, but it's way more simple. Uh, but I think equally intriguing in many ways and kind of a fun, this is a fun prophecy. This is a fun thing that is just one of those um, confirmations of the Lord and his word and his sovereignty. Uh, and so I find this little prophecy here very encouraging. Uh, it, it only takes a few minutes to really explain the prophecy, but there's a lot around this that kind of, uh, to me, is exciting. And, and it has a lot to do with Jerusalem. And so I've brought a lot of my picks from Jerusalem, uh, Israel trips that we've been on, AC Creekers. Uh, and uh, you might even see yourself. How many of you guys have been to Israel with me at one time or another? Raise your hand. Wow, that's amazing. So this 10 o'clock service, there's only one, I think. <laughs> like, that's amazing. Uh, what was it last night? This whole half and nobody from this half. So like, what I've found is if you go on an Israel trip, they all sit together. That's one thing I've noticed. They're like friends, lifelong friends. They sit together in church, which is one of the perks of going to Israel. You go travel the world for 15 days, you become really good friends with a lot of people and they all kind of hang out from that day forward, which is really cool. But uh, Lord willing, by the way, we'll do an Israel trip. We've got it planned for November of 2022. Uh, We'll be signing up for that in uh, January-ish of 2022. So kind of stay tuned for that. Save your pennies. Uh, It's not a cheap trip, but it is an amazing life-changing trip and love to have you join us uh, on that. But you'll see some of our footage from some of those visits uh, uh, because this this prophecy is is pretty amazing. Um, Let's let's take a look. Ezekiel 43 verse 1 is where we begin our, our text. It says there, afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell upon my face." And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. Here he sees a vision of the glory of the Lord coming into Jerusalem. And he says, it's like the vision that I had in Kibar. Does anybody remember where we had that vision? It was Ezekiel chapter one and two where Ezekiel says, I was by the river Kibar and he saw something that we don't have time to go into fully. But if you were there when we were studying Ezekiel one and two, do you remember the cherubim and the wheels within wheels and this floating throne? And it was the glory of God sitting on this thing that was sort of floating. And it was there in Jerusalem and Ezekiel tragically saw the glory of God lift up and depart out of the East Gate through Jerusalem, out of the East Gate and left Jerusalem altogether. It was a a prophecy of Ezekiel, a vision that he saw that the the glory of the Lord had departed from Jerusalem. Um, Now to a Jew, that's a horrible thing. You know, Jerusalem, the the thing that makes it special is the glory of the Lord being there, God's presence. The word glory is a Greek, uh, pardon me, a Hebrew word that we don't even really have a a proper word because to you and me, the word glory, we think of old glory or the glory days or like we don't even have a word that matches. The word in the Hebrew is kabod, which means the weighty 
tangible presence of God uh, that they could sense. Like remember uh, the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies, it says that the kabod, the glory of the Lord dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant. So when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he could sense the Lord's presence right there. <clears throat> so when the Jews got all tangled up in paganism and worshiping idols and all that stuff, Ezekiel's like, man, Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed. And just before Jerusalem's destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, Ezekiel sees the vision of the glory of God, whoop, out of there, gone, history. Now, way later in Ezekiel chapter, you know, 30, uh, 43, we see verses one through four, we see the, the, the glory of the Lord come back. When is this gonna happen? Well, as it turns out, this part of Ezekiel from you know, chapters 40 and onward, we're mostly gonna be talking about a time period called the millennial kingdom, the millennium. That is a thousand years where the Lord's gonna rule and reign on this earth. Um, by the way, if you're just joining us or if you're new to the Bible, um, in, in the study of eschatology, that's the end times of the Bible and what the Bible says about the last days, um, there's a way that this is gonna fold out and Christians kind of debate what the Bible teaches on this. I believe firmly in, in the pre-trib rapture view. And let me explain what that is. Um, the next thing on the biblical prophecy list of things to do uh, that the Lord says he's gonna do, I believe is the rapture of the church. That, that could happen at any moment. And we see the stage set for that. We, uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, so the rapture of the church, that's where God takes his church up out and brings us to the marriage feast of the lamb where we're with the Lord forever from that point on. Meanwhile, back on earth, seven years called the tribulation period is gonna happen. Um, and, um, and that's gonna be a time where God does two main things, pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Secondly, he's gonna wake up the Jews during the tribulation. The Jews are still God's chosen people. He still has a plan for the Jews and a purpose for the Jews, and he loves the Jews. But largely, the Jews have rejected God uh, largely in the world, and they're blind, the Bible says. Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells that whole story. So in the tribulation period, that seven years, we'll be in heaven with the Lord, seven years of tribulation to, to you know, judge the world, but also to wake up the nation of the Jews. Then the second coming of Christ is at the end of that tribulation period where Christ returns with 10,000s of his saints. Who are they? Us, who have been up with him in our marriage feast up in heaven, we return with him. By the way, if you believe the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, then you're raptured up and then you come right back down. I call that yo-yo theology. Uh, you, Whoa, okay, what a disappointment. Uh, you're headed up and then you got so close. Uh, I believe the rapture serves the purpose of getting his church out of the wrath, you know, because we're not appointed under wrath. But be that as it may, rapture of the church, seven year period of tribulation, Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, and then he'll subdue the nations and he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom. Um, that's kind of the brief summary of the timeline of events that the Bible, as I see it, falls out. And, and there's, like I said, different views on this, uh, and you can look those up. Why don't you tell us all the views? Because I think they're all wrong. Uh, I think the Bible is clear on this one. It's not even a hard thing, if you ask me. Um, and you can study that if you want to. Uh, all that to say, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm not alone on this, by the way. There's a lot of solid people who believe that's the way it's gonna fold out. Um, now, you say, okay, got it, that's the, that's the situation. But, but this little snip, snip, snippet, or, or, or I could call it a snapshot, really, of, of this prophecy is suddenly the glory returning into Jerusalem. 
Ezekiel's talking about the millennial kingdom, really, and largely this section of, of his book. The rest of it's about the millennium. When is the glory gonna return? When did it leave? It left. The glory of God left Jerusalem, 586, right around there when the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem and wiped it out. And the glory of God has not been there um, ever since, except for one time, one season, uh, and that's when Jesus came into Jerusalem. When Jesus rode his little donkey on a colt down the mountain of, of the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley into the East Gate. And he rode into Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Then he, then, uh, he you know, of course, went in there, died on the cross, was buried. And then he went up to the Mount of Olives where he ascended. After he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Question, where is Jesus gonna come in his second coming? Where is he first gonna touch down? Well, the Bible tells us it's the Mount of Olives. The same place that he ascended into heaven is the same place he's coming down. And he's gonna land on the Mount of Olives and go through the East Gate, the Bible tells us. This prophecy of Ezekiel is one of those prophecies among several that tell us that. Ezekiel says, I saw coming by the way of the east, the glory of God coming in through the way of the east, the east gate. Um, so what an ama amazing picture, this east gate. Now, let's, let's talk about this because this is where the prophecy gets kind of interesting, but there's a little history we, we need to go over. First of all, Jerusalem is, a, is, is an amazing city because it's God's city. It's, the name Jerusalem or Jerusalem means foundation of peace. Uh, traditionally, has Jerusalem been a peaceful city? Uh, largely, it's one of the more uh, cities that have been under great conflict for a long, long, long time. It will be the ultimate city of peace when Christ comes and rules and reigns in Jerusalem. So the name is the foundation of peace. As it turns out, um, uh, the Lord says, I call Jerusalem mine. Second Chronicles 6, 6, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Uh, you know, isn't it amazing that God says, I put my name, do you have something that you put your name on? Uh, that you, you know, you write your name on the bottom of something, uh, you know, like Toy Story, Andy wrote Andy on the bottom of Woody's shoe, because it was his. Uh, God did that with Jerusalem. He didn't do that with Dundee. He didn't do that with Gresham or Clackamas or New York or Washington, D.C. or Paris, for crying out loud. He, he actually says, guess what? The one city in the world that I'm gonna write my name on is Jerusalem. Now, for you that are studying geopolitics, this makes sense out of something that totally doesn't make sense. Why does the world care about Jerusalem? What's the big deal? Mathematically, Jerusalem is a total waste of time. Oh, it's got some cool archeological stuff, but there's hundreds of cities that have amazing, go to Rome, there's amazing archeological digs. I mean, there's all kinds of a glorious cities. Jerusalem has no major natural resources. It's kind of up in the mountains of Israel and it's kind of hard to get to. And, and it's, it, it's beautiful in its own way. And those of us that know the Bible, we love Jerusalem for its, just the, 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 the beautiful history. But really, who, who cares about this city of Jerusalem? Why do people care? I think there's only really one reason. It's because God says, guess what? That's my city. I put my name on that city. And that's why you see Jerusalem on the news every night. That's why the world is focused on this city. Uh, you know, otherwise, it would, nobody would really care about it. There's other cities that are more impressive or more beautiful or even contested over. But Jerusalem gets all the attention, I believe, because God says, guess what? Jerusalem is mine. So with all that said, uh, Jerusalem has been a battleground and it's been historically fought over for millennia. Now, 
now when you go to Jerusalem, you see, um, you know, the, uh, the modern city that's kind of spread out, but you also see the old city. Um, and the old city is, is fascinating because the old city walls are still there and you can go kind of check it out. Um, there's eight gates that go in and out of the old city of Jerusalem. You can be walking around modern Jerusalem. In fact, there's this one mall where we, our hotel is that we like to stay at, the Mamila Mall. It's this very modern, beautiful mall. And you walk through this mall and all of a sudden you go through this really old rock stuff and suddenly you're in the old city of Jerusalem. Like it's really kind of amazing. But there's eight gates that go in and out of the old city of Jerusalem. The Damascus Gate, Herod's Gate, the Zion Gate, you know, the Dung Gate, where they hauled all the camel dung uh, through that. Um, uh, the East Gate, uh, the Jaffa or the Jaffa, Jaffa Gate, is, uh, was it called in ancient times? Um, the New Gate and the Zion Gate. The Zion Gate's kind of fun. I, when I go to Israel, I take you through all these gates. We walk through them all. Um, except for the East Gate, we don't walk through that one. Can anybody guess why? <laughs> Well, the East Gate's the, the point of topic for this morning. There's a reason we don't walk through it, and it's because it looks like this. There's, it's been sealed up, and uh, nobody's walking through it. Now, that, that's the question. We got some video footage of last time we were there, and uh, Micah and I were up on the Mount of Olives, and we, we sort of shot some of this footage. But this is looking from the Mount of Olives. We're standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, looking down, there's the East Gate, and I got to do some teaching with our group there as we're overlooking this part of the city. It's so fun to get in the Word and just see it right in front of you. And, and behind that gate is the Temple Mount where the Muslims have control. Uh, the Golden Dome building back there, that's of course the Dome of the Rock Shrine of the Muslims. Uh, and, and also the Alaska Mosque is behind that further still. But, um, but it's interesting because the East Gate is, is sort of one of the main, it should be like the main gate of Jerusalem. Um, it, it should be the front door, if you would, of Jerusalem. It's, it, it, even, even sealed up, it's one of the most glorious gates. When you go around the walled city, you realize, wow, that, that was a beautiful gate. Why did they seal it up? What's the deal? Why doesn't anybody use that gate anymore? Um, well, there's actually an answer, but there's a lot of history that gets us to that answer. Um, so let's take a look here. So, so if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, one of the first main mentions of Jerusalem is in a little mysterious story. In Genesis 14, I'm not gonna have you turn there, but it's just a quick reminder. There were these kings that attacked Lot, Abraham's nephew, and these kings took him off. And there were these battles between the kings. It's called the Battle of the Kings. Well, Abraham saw that Lot had been kidnapped and his family and his stuff. So Abraham gets his army together and attacks these kings. And Abraham defeats Chedorlaomer uh, and, and rescues Lot and uh, has great victory, uh, it's a great story. Um, but then at the end of chapter 14, there's this funny little addendum to the story. After Abraham defeated um, the, you know, Chedorlaomer, he goes and meets up with a guy named Melchizedek. Uh, Brett Gesundheit, Melchizedek, who? Melchizedek, who is that guy? Well, if you read on in Genesis 14, it says this, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. Now pause right there for a second. Um, is it right for someone to be both a king and a priest in Jerusalem? Anybody? No. One of the rules that God laid out is nobody except for one person can be both priest and king. And actually there's a tri triune uh, deal there. The prophet, the priest, and the king. There's only one person can have all those offices. Anybody wanna take a guess at who that is? Jesus, it's always the right answer, <laughs> Jesus. Um, 
so this guy is both a king and a, and a priest. So he's, he, this, this, now we have to kind of say, well, what in the world is being said here then? He's the king of Salem, which is the, one of the ancient names of Jerusalem, not Oregon, capital city. Um, Salem, it is, but, it, but uh, Salem was the ancient name of Jerusalem. So this Melchizedek is the king of Salem who brought forth bread and wine. What is bread and wine a type of in the Bible? Anybody? The Eucharist, communion, the table of the Lord. So he brings bread and wine. He's the priest of the Most High God. And he, uh, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. What's going on here? You got this king priest of the Most High God before the priesthood was even established. Did you think about that? That would come long later, you know, after Moses would come and give the law and they'd come up with the high priest with Aaron and the priesthood and the temple and the tabernacle. That hadn't even been established yet. And suddenly we got this guy in Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, Salem, who's the priest of the Most High God, who is also a king of righteousness. Hmm. Well, um, you, you might say, and why is Abraham giving tithes to him? Aren't tithes meant for God? Well, we have a commentary on this. Uh, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. <laughs> uh, right, and Hebrews chapter seven tells us what in the world's going on here. Hebrews tells us, Paul probably, in my opinion, wrote Hebrews, uh, but uh, we're not sure. But he, the author of Hebrews says, for, the, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. After that also king of Salem, which is the king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now this seals the deal. We know who this is. This is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, the King of righteousness in Jerusalem. Wait a minute, Brett. Jesus hadn't been born in, in Bethlehem yet. He wasn't even alive yet. Oh, do you remember? Jesus, according to the book of Colossians and other places in the Bible, Jesus was there at creation. Um, God became a man. And it's the mystery of the Trinity that Jesus was God in the flesh. But did you know there's several times in the Bible where you know, Jesus, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus was seen in the Old Testament. Abraham got to see that a couple times. This was one of them. When he meets Melchizedek, who Hebrews, and it goes on to tell us that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is probably a Christophany, as it's called, or a theophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament there in Jerusalem. Now this is cool because this is like a foreshadow. When Abraham sees this in Jerusalem, he's seeing a foreshadow of the coming millennial kingdom when Christ is the king ruling from Jerusalem. Um, so, so this automatically puts Jerusalem on the map as far as something really important right there in the Bible, okay? Are you, are you still with me on this? I know we're getting into some weird stuff about Melchizedek and all that. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, this is, this is pretty cool because um, uh, I don't know if I can point to this stuff, but when, when we're standing on the Mount of Olives, one of the things we do is um, we, we see the East Gate right there. Uh, it's tiny when you're standing up there. On the 
But this wall was not there at the beginning of Jerusalem. In fact, this whole area of the Temple Mount, this is the, the, the southern side, all the way to the northern side to there. But then you go down here, this is the old city of Jerusalem right here, this little place here. And let me show you kind of how that works out because this is, this is kind of a cool story. When you, when you go to Jerusalem, one of the places I take you is they call it the city of David. Um, and, and that's right there where that red circle is. The city of David, there's some amazing archeological digs that are happening as we speak. And we get to go down into the underground where they're doing all these digs and they've, they've unearthed palaces of the time of David's time. Um, and it's really cool. We have to go down these uh, stairs into this pit. I call it the pit of despair. Uh, as we go down into this pit. And when you get down in there, there's this amazing series of caverns and caves that, that take you through all these archeological digs of ancient Jerusalem. Um, but here's where it gets cool. So Abraham goes to Salem when Melchizedek was there. Fast forward 1,000 years. Um, what happened 1,000 years after Abraham was in Salem? He goes in, uh, David comes to the city, 1,000 BC, David. And Jerusalem at that time is called Jebus because the Canaanites were there called the Jebusites. Remember all the Canaanites, the, the Jebusites, the Midianites, the flashlights, all those, all those guys that lived there, the Canaanites in that time period. Um, as it turns out, the Jebusites were one of the last of the Canaanites to be there in the Holy Land. The, the Jews failed to drive out the Jebusites because they had the fortified city of Jerusalem. Well, David is newly crowned king there and what's so cool about that, that part of it is after David's crown king, he, he gets all his, his men together. And in 2 Samuel chapter five, he says, whichever one of you guys takes the city of, of Jebus, I will make you the commanding officer of my army. So the little dude named Joab, who happened to be an expert at killing people, um, he gets together a, like a SEAL Team 6 group of guys. And, and they go and they find the, the sewer shaft that runs out of the city walls down through the, the, the city. And, um, and what, is they, what do they do? Well, this shaft, this is a shaft I take you to go see. This was that water shaft that Joab and his men, they climbed up into it and climbed up this very shaft, Warren shaft is what they call it because a guy by the name of Warren found this archeologically a long time ago. But this is the, this is the water shaft that would lead to the city of Jebus so those, those guys climbed up through there, popped out the manhole and uh, took over the city and, and Joab became David's commanding officer. It was an amazing story. Quite a feat of military tactics uh, that were, well, it was fun to study those, those kinds of things. Well, David gets the city and it's now called the city of David. They change it from Jebus to the city of David. And then it would be called Jerusalem after that. Um, now, if you, by the way, if you keep going through this and walk past uh, Warren Shaft, you get to walk through all these little caverns and places and eventually get you, if, if you're brave and wanna follow me, some people say, Brett, can I fit through there? I'm like, if I can fit through there, you can fit through there. Um, but uh, the Jews pay me extra to clean off the walls as I uh, kind of walk through the, uh, this, this Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, this is Hezekiah's tunnel. And you can see the chisel marks from Hezekiah's men. This is like Bible story come to life. And it's the exact same tunnel. There's even an inscription on the wall right there where they, it tells you who did it and when, and they were trying to fight the Assyrians and Rabshakeh and all that stuff. And then you come out eventually to the pool of Siloam at the end of the Hezekiah's tunnel. It's an amazing thing. Um, but all of this stuff is part of Jerusalem's history. Now, Jerusalem becomes important, of course, when Abraham meets Melchizedek, 
Jerusalem becomes important when David takes it over and becomes the city of David. But then of course, it's the Jews city, the golden era from David all the way to Zedekiah, Jerusalem belongs to the Jews for centuries and centuries. Then you come to the time of Ezekiel where the Babylonians in 586 crush Jerusalem. The glory of the Lord departs from Jerusalem when the Babylonians came. After that, nation after nation trounced through that region of the world and crushed Jerusalem over and over again. After the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians came. Um, after the Medes and the Persians, Alexander the Great besieged Jerusalem, was gonna crush Jerusalem. Um, the story of Alexander is kind of interesting as it relates to Jerusalem because he was gonna crush Jerusalem like he'd done all the other cities. But this little priest stumbles out of the southern steps in Jerusalem with a scroll and says, I gotta talk to Alexander before he beats, you know, crushes our city. I'm like, okay, whatever. And so they take this little priest down and, and he unrolls the book of Daniel to Alexander the Great and says, you're in the Bible. He says, you're in the Hebrew Old Testament that the, 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 the mighty, powerful man from Greece will come and conquer Jerusalem after the Medes and the Persians. And uh, Alexander was so moved that he was in that Hebrew writing that he did not crush Jerusalem, but uh, it was not a shot fired, if you would. It was, it was taken peacefully by the Greeks at that time. Uh, kind of an amazing story there. Well, then more and more, the Seleucids, the Mamelukes, the Syrians, the Romans, the, the Muslims, they all came and went uh, through the ages. But, but from the time of the Babylonians, all the way fast forward to the Roman era, when the Romans took over that region of the world. The Jews are in dire straits by that time. The iron fist of Rome was oppressive and the Jews were largely being enslaved and killed by the Romans. The ultimate thing was AD 70 when Titus, the Roman general came and crushed Jerusalem, uh, overturned every stone, every rock, everything was in total disrepair in AD 70. Um, what did the Romans do? They took um, you know, tens of thousands, some say hundreds of thousands of Jews to Rome where they made them slaves. Did you know that the Romans didn't build the Colosseum? Uh, if you do your history, it's Jews, all the Jews who built the Roman Colosseum. This is from our trip to uh, Paul's missionary journeys we did a few years ago, another trip that's fun. A lot of these Athe Creekers here in the picture. We go from the Colosseum, now this is, this is cool. You go up to the Arch of Titus. This arch that I'm doing a teaching by here in Rome, this Arch of Titus was built in AD 71, one year after Titus crushed Jerusalem. And this arch is in commemoration of that, dragging all those Jews as slaves up to Rome. But there's also these little reliefs or carvings or formings of, of, um, of, the, of the Romans carrying the Jewish relics. See the menorah being hauled off by the Romans out of the temple in Jerusalem? This is commemorated in Rome to this very day when the Romans crushed the Jews and dragged them out as slaves and had them build the Colosseum and all that stuff. That's part of history. But it was AD 70, this, this, this became a major symbol. In fact, did you know the Jews to this day use this carving or whatever it is, uh, this relief as a national symbol? You say, well, why would the Jews do this? This is a hostile thing. They crushed the Jews and made them slaves. And the reason the Jews make this one of their stamps, their major stamps today, is because they say, never again. We Jews will never be taken out of Israel, out of Jerusalem ever again. And it's a reminder of, of what was horrible that happened when the Romans crushed Jerusalem in AD 70. So the Arch of Titus and this relief is a major part of the history of, of the Jews and of Jerusalem. Now, 
So Jerusalem sits in ruin in AD 70, um, and the Romans start building it back up, but without Jews. In fact, it was this emperor, Emperor Hadrian, evil dude, he wants to make sure Jews do not live in Jerusalem anymore. And he does that by renaming Israel to the, um, you know, um, Syria, Palestina, or it became Palestine. That came from the Roman emperor just trying to spite the Jews. It was Israel before he named it Palestina, uh, which is after the extinct Philistines that used to be an enemy of the Jews. He also changed the name of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina, and this Roman emperor did all kinds of horrible things. He, he said if, if a Jew is found in Jerusalem, you could kill him and be in your, your legal right. Just take your sword out, cut him up into pieces, and that was a good citizen who does that. If two Jews were sitting outside of the city of Jerusalem, if they were conversing, you could also kill them uh, on the spot and be in your legal right. That came from Emperor Hadrian. Uh, so because of that, the Jews just no longer lived in Jerusalem. They were driven out from AD, you know, from, well, actually AD 70 was the beginning, but right around 132, 135, that era, that's when Emperor Hadrian kind of sealed the deal. And Jerusalem became not as much a Jewish place. Um, and, and it became more of a Muslim place. Of course, you had the Crusaders come uh, in 1099. The Crusaders are responsible for killing, you know, uh, a lot of Jews and a lot of Muslims. Uh, 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 you know, in the sign of the cross. And it was a horrible part of history, actually. Um, Saladin the Kurd in 1187. Um, man, the history just of Ju Jerusalem is, is quite loaded. I, it's, all of these guys, guys have stories. The uh, Ayyubids of the Egyptian uh, people in 1244 came and trounced Jerusalem. They all kind of came and went. But the big one is that you should note is the Ottoman Turks when they came in uh, 1517. And the Ottoman Empire landed in Jerusalem and was there for 500 years. Probably, what does that have to do with the East Gate and this prophecy of Ezekiel? Well, this is where it really starts dialing in. There was a dude by the name of Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, I've got a picture, a painting of him at least. Um, now with a name like that, it gives you kind of a big head, I think. Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's funny, if you look up Suleiman the Magnificent, all the paintings of him from 1500s, uh, he's got this massive turban on his head. So we're not sure why, maybe he had a lot of hair, uh, maybe he had a big head uh, or whatever, wanted to look like he had a huge brain, I don't know. But he looks like Wyatt Earp with a big turban. Anyway, I digress. He was a powerful man and he ruled for a long, long time from 1520 to 1566. And he did a lot in the world of that region of the world. One of the things he did is said, I wanna rebuild Jerusalem. As an Ottoman Turk, he started building stuff. But he also wanted to make sure that the Jews never got a foothold. He was kind of an anti-Semite and he wanted to make sure the Jews never returned to Jerusalem. As the Jews were starting to trickle back in and, and there was a, a buzz about this Jewish Messiah that was gonna come. And Suleiman said, I don't want any Jewish Messiah coming and taking the city of Jerusalem. So Suleiman, the not so magnificent, he actually did two main things. First, he heard of a prophecy of the Messiah coming through the East Gate. Where did he read that? He read it, Ezekiel chapter 43. Our very text, Suleiman the Magnificent read Ezekiel 43 and said, this glorious king is supposed to come through the East Gate of Jerusalem. I'm not gonna let that happen. That's what he said to himself. So the first thing he did is place graves in front of the East Gate. Um, and as I showed you the video, you may have seen that, but in this picture, you can see there's 
It's not just, this is just an up close version. There's all kinds of graves. It's a massive cemetery in front of the East Gate. Now, why would he do that? Well, he knew that a Jewish rabbi, which was supposed to be their Messiah, would never set foot over a, you know, a Gentile cemetery. It was against their rules to walk on the graves or around anywhere near the graves of Gentiles. So Suleiman planted all kinds of graves there in front of the gate to make sure that, that the Messiah wouldn't go through there. That was his first dumb idea. Um, uh, by the way, would that stop Jesus, the true Messiah? That was just some tradition of man that, that G- Jesus could blow through graves like nobody's business. He, he wouldn't care about that. So Suleiman was a little short, short-sighted on that. The second thing he did, obviously, and this answers the question at the beginning, <coughs> excuse me, is he seals this gate shut. Um, <coughs> excuse me, and that's why this glorious, beautiful gate is sealed shut to this very day. It was Suleiman that had that gate sealed shut so that nobody could come and go because he didn't want the Jewish Messiah, according to Ezekiel 43 verses one through four, he didn't want that to happen. Again, dumb. Uh, Dumb on so many accounts. Uh, You say, well, Brett, it it looks like it stayed sealed and the Messiah didn't come. Um, But that was just him not knowing the Bible. In fact, Suleiman, the not so magnificent, made a huge error that I see people make today. You gotta read your whole Bible. Uh, Don't just read little verses out of context. People do that all the time. Churches do that all the time. Suleiman read Ezekiel 43, but did you know what? He did not read Ezekiel 44, the next page. All he should have done is turn the page. Let's do that right now. Would you turn the page with me? And let me show you something that's kind of fascinating. Ezekiel chapter 44, the next chapter, verse one. This is great. It says, then... He brought me, Ezekiel, back by the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east. That's the east gate. And it was shut. Verse two, then said the Lord, Jehovah, unto me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no man shall enter in by it because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Four, verse three, it is for the prince The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter in by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the same. Now we know who this prince is because Daniel 9 says the Messiah, the prince will come through that. It's it's a great thing. Here's Ezekiel saying, guess what? That east gate's gonna be shut until the Messiah, the prince comes in his second coming. Little did old uh, Suleiman know that he was fulfilling Bible prophecy only setting the stage perfectly for the Messiah to come by sealing off that gate. And that gate remains sealed to this day, which is such a fascinating thing. Well, not very fascinating to me, Brett. Well, do you know how many times that gate's been threatened to be blown open since Suleiman 500 years ago? Since Suleiman did that, there's, there's actually many times in history where that was gonna be uh, blown open. Let me just give you two examples. One big one, the Ottoman Turks, they were there you know, for 500 years and it was World War I when the Brits came, the, the British, and they took over Jerusalem from the Ottomans after 500 years of being in Jerusalem. Um, that invasion of uh, you know, Jerusalem in, in uh, 1917 took place um, by a, a guy, a general from England, uh, General Ed, Edmund Allenby. And it's quite a story where he uh, comes. What, how's this happen? Remember in World War I, uh, in that region of the world, a lot of, there was still a lot of horses involved. Um, 
There were some modern uh, machinery. There were, there were a few things that they had. The British had a few tanks. Remember those World War I era tanks? You guys that are into this stuff, uh, they were big, kind of clumsy, but they were still tanks nonetheless. Uh, Allenby had a couple tanks and he put them right outside of the city wall. The Ottomans shut the city up and, and, you know, and, and walled, uh, closed all the gates. Well, Allenby pulls right up to the east gate with his tanks and says, I'm gonna blow through that east gate and I'm gonna take over the city. Um, that's what Allenby did. Now, now, the funny thing about General Allenby, as it turns out, is he was a, a Bible-believing Christian. <laughs> and he knew some of the prophecies about Jerusalem. He did not know about the East Gate prophecy. But he felt bad. He's like, man, I'm about to crush this city that's biblical. And he felt bad. And he didn't like it. But one of his advisors said, listen, let's take one more attempt at getting these Ottomans to surrender. So here's what we should do. Let's get our biplanes. Remember in World War I, they had those old little biplanes that barely knew how to fly? Well, they got one of those up in the air and, uh, and uh, they got these buckets of leaflets. And on the leaflets, Alan B. wrote on there, we are more powerful than you, surrender or die. And it says, and he signs it, uh, you know, General Allenby. Um, <laughs> and, and so like the signature there, uh, this is actually his signature, he signed it. The rest of it was written in Arabic. So it said, you know, we're more powerful than you, you know, surrender or die kind of thing. And then he signed Allenby. The, the Muslims, they had never seen biplanes before. The Ottomans there in Jerusalem, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, they're like, they're like, they don't know what to do. They're like, this is, what is going on? And then these leaflets come down and they, they read the little leaflet that says, surrender or die. They're like, whoa. And, they, and then they see the signature and they read it as Allah Bey, which means the prophet of Allah. <laughs> and it's a true story. These guys think the prophet of Allah just flew over their city and said, you better surrender to these guys. They, they dropped their arms and opened the gates. Um, and, and not one shot was fired, and Allenby, poised to blow open the east gate, pulls everything out and away, and he actually <clears throat> enters in by the Joppa gate. Now, this is great. The reason I love this picture <clears throat> is because Allenby was all actually mounted on a horse, and he rode up to the Joppa gate, and he was gonna go and ride in peacefully because he was taking over the city. Um, but he, he, instead of riding, right at the, at the Joppa gate, he gets off of his horse and he walks through the gate. This is a real picture of him doing that. And the reason he does this is, is he got off his horse and says, what are you doing? He, says, he said, only one is worthy to ride into this city. As a, as a Bible-believing Christian, he knew that Jesus is gonna ride into that city one day. Um, great story. But that's one of the stories where the, the East Gate was about to be blown open um, but, uh, but the Lord said, nope, I'm gonna keep it shut. And he made this story work out. Now, after the British got Jerusalem, then in 1948, um, you know, of course, the, the Jews got Jerusalem. Both the world said, okay, you can have Jerusalem. Uh, the, the League of Nations, the United Nations, um, and uh, the United States, we all said, it's all yours. And the War of Independence, that whole thing happened. So the Jews have half of Jerusalem. But do you remember before 1967, the other half of Jerusalem belonged to anybody? Anybody? The Jordanians, the Arabs. <clears throat> the Arabs still had the Temple Mount, the, the Dome of the Rock Shrine, the East Gate. That was all part of Jordanian territory. And do you guys, maybe some of you are old enough to remember this. Remember uh, King Hussein? 
Uh, this is a younger version of King Hussein flying his helicopter over the Temple Mount when he had the Jordanian had the, the Temple Mount. And the reason he's flying over this, by the way, is he's about to cover this in a fresh coat of gold. If you see the Dome of the Rock, shiny gold, it's, and this one looks whiter there, it's because the gold had faded through the hundreds of years. So King Hussein recovered that with gold. But, but he also, the reason I, we got this picture, he also, because he, the Jordanians possessed half of Jerusalem at that time, and he said, you know what? We need to build a big Muslim convention center on the Temple Mount. And so he was getting ready. He had all the, the equipment, <clears throat> all the construction materials to build this huge convention center there at the Temple Mount for Muslims pilgrimage uh, you know, to, the, to the holy place of Islam and all that. Well, guess what? This is great. Um, King Hussein and his huge construction crew, they're out there. And uh, they start getting ready. They're gonna blast through the East Gate and build their whole thing on that section of the, uh, they were getting ready to totally tear down the East Gate. They had their jackhammers. They were hours away from beginning this big construction project in the demolition of the East Gate. It happened to be a little time, uh, June of 1967. Now, if you know your history, what happened? Hours before they were getting ready to doze over the East Gate, the war of, of 67 war broke out in Israel and the Jews took over that section of Jerusalem. Um, it's one of the more famous, um, you know, amazing wars, the six day war, um, June of 1967, the Jews took over Jerusalem and they gained possession of the Temple Mount, the East Gate and uh, uh, King Hussein's, um, you know, building project was thwarted and the East Gate remained shut because of, I think this was all the Lord orchestrating all these events to keep that gate shut until the Messiah, the Prince comes through. So the Jews came through all the other gates, but they didn't go through that East gate. It stays shut even to this day. And Moshe Dayan, you know, and his uh, guys, they came walking up on the Temple Mount like cowboys, you know, when they took over the Temple Mount. And um, this is a picture of Moshe Dayan. But do you remember what happened right after he did this? Moshe Dayan gave the Temple Mount back to the Muslims. Um, but enough control to where King Hussein couldn't build his convention center. Um, the, the, the Muslims, the Waf, uh, um, which are largely Jordanians, they control the Temple Mount to this day. When we go to the Temple Mount, if they allow us on the Temple Mount on our trips, uh, we have to be real careful because the Waf is not real fond of American tourists on their Temple Mount. But anyway, it's, it's a, a politically hotbed of controversy right now. But all this to say, what an amazing story, this one little gate that sits sealed shut in Jerusalem. When I go there and walk by this gate, it, I always think of several things. Um, in fact, I, I'm gonna just say there's three lessons to learn from this little prophecy of the sealing of the East Gate and the second coming of Christ coming through that East Gate. Um, the, the lessons to learn, number one, God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows how things are gonna turn out. He's orchestrating events to work out exactly the way he wants them to work out. And, and I, I find great comfort in that, that the Lord knows what he's doing. And you know, military powers can come and go, kings and rulers can come and go, but God's will will ultimately be accomplished. And that's something that's good. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in God, his will is always the best will, the best thing. Um, God's sovereignty. Um, how many of you know that, that, that God's sovereignty is wonderful? He'll, he'll, um, he'll open doors he wants to open and he'll shut doors he wants to shut. I'm reminded of Revelation 3, 7, where they're talking to the church at Philadelphia. Um, that's not 
you know, the United States, Philadelphia, it's uh, um, Turkey, actually. Uh, and it says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The Lord opens doors and shuts doors, and I'm really happy about that. Has the Lord ever shut doors in your life that you were bummed? Oh Lord, what's the deal? You shut the door. And you know the Lord shut the door. You're like, what's the, I remember uh, as a church, we've been through that. I remember when we were at this middle school and we were starting to you know, bust out at the seams and the county was saying, you can't meet here because you're a church and this is a public school. And there was this kind of, you know, we were like, oh no, we're gonna be out on our ear here pretty soon. So we were looking around for places to meet and we found this little old church up on the hill behind us here, the Palisades area up, up in uh, you know, Lake Oswego. And, um, and it was a little church, it was empty, it had a parking lot. It, man, it was awesome. We were like, this is it. 150 people fit in this building. And it's got a huge parking lot with 35 parking spaces. We're like, this will be awesome. And we were ready to make an offer and everything. And then the Lord just shut the door very clearly. And we're like, come on, Lord, that was perfect. And, and the Lord just said, no, I'm shutting that door. And so we said, okay, you must have something different. Now I'm really glad the Lord shut that door. We'd be doing 350 services every weekend. The traffic would be a nightmare. Did you guys see on our barbecue last weekend? It was crazy. Uh, it was so great. It worked, you know, I gotta give kudos to the staff and all our volunteers because yeah, it was amazing. Those guys, they did amazing. Um, <laughs> we filled up our parking lot and we filled up Rolling Hills parking lot and there was buses and it just worked out amazing. And it was just so cool. But um, you know, we had near 5,000 people on the lawn there. We fed, you know, 4,000 people. It was like a, um, it was a lot of burgers, but, but I think of the Lord shutting that door. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for shutting the door of that little tiny church up on the hill. The Lord had a different plan. So remember when the Lord's sovereignty shuts a door in your life, remember it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. The Lord knows what he's doing. Uh, I'm reminded of that when I think of the East Gate, God's sovereignty. Secondly, I also am reminded of God's royalty. When Christ comes to that East Gate, it's gonna be a glorious coming. He's not coming as a humble carpenter. He's coming as a conquering king. When he first time he came as a man to be judged and go to the cross, the next time he comes, he's coming to be the judge over the whole world and judging the world of its sins. He's coming as royalty. Psalm 24 speaks of this event when he's gonna come back in return through that gate. In Psalm 24, verses seven through 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts, by the way, is, is another way of kind of saying the Lord of, of armies. The Lord is mighty in battle, it says here. Um, this is the second coming of Christ and he's coming as king of kings. He's coming as royalty. So we learn of, in the East Gate scenario here, we learn of the, the, the Lord's sovereignty. We learn of his royalty, but we also see here at the East Gate, his beauty. And I wanna end with this one. And then we'll go to the table of communion here in a minute because I, I see this as a good opportunity for us to remember what Jesus has done. God's beauty. Did you know there the East Gate has three names? Um, the three names of the East Gate is uh, the Gate Beautiful. That was during the time of Christ, by the way. First century, that's what the gate was called. 
But it was also called the East Gate. It was also called the Golden Gate um, in, in uh, ancient times. But when it was called Gate Beautiful, an amazing little story happened there in Acts chapter three. Um, after Jesus had died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, there are the apostles, Peter and John, walk through the, the Gate Beautiful. Let me just quickly read this. You don't need to turn there, you just listen. Um, now Peter and John went up to the temple to pray, being the hour of prayer. A certain man who was lame from his mother's womb was carried and laid, they laid him there every day at the gate, which was by the temple called Beautiful to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. Uh, he's a beggar, he's, he's got his cardboard, Vietnam vet, uh, you know, hungry, please. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's really the similar thing, this poor beggar sitting by the door of this East Gate, but he's crippled. Well, it says Peter and John fastened, uh, fastening his eyes upon him with John said, look on us, look at us. And he gave heed to them, expecting to receive something from them, probably money. But then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him up by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately lifted him to his feet. And his ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered in with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, people had seen this dude begging there as a cripple for his whole life. Suddenly, all these people in the temple are like, uh, here's this dude that was crippled, he's sitting there forever, now he's busting a move on the temple mount. Like, what's going on with that? Um, well, it says this, and all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he that sat with, uh, asking for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were all filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. Man, I, I just love this story. This is the redemptive nature of what Jesus can do. How did Peter and, and, and John do this? They said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, um, rise up and walk. You know, this gate not only is a symbol of God's sovereignty, his royalty, but also his beauty, that he, that he makes all things beautiful in his time. Jesus is the one who heals the brokenhearted. Jesus is the one who takes away our cruddy, dirty sins. Jesus is the one who forgives us of our sins. It's because his whole plan sovereignly worked out that he first came to die on the cross for the sins of the world. The second time he's coming through that east gate, he's coming as a conquering king. And for some, that could be very scary. But if you're a follower or a believer in Jesus, the second coming of Christ is gonna be the most glorious day in the world's history. It's gonna be awesome. So we have much to rejoice about, the, just the redemptive work. And the East Gate reminds me of all three of these things. It's a gate to watch, it's a gate, gate to see uh, in these last days. So Lord, bless these, your people, as we go our way, as we give our lives to you, use us. Lord, may we be humble servants tools in your hand, Lord, ready to serve you. May we be lights in this dark world as we walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Blessings on you. We'll see you next time. You're dismissed.